Welcome, everyone, to the In-House Roundhouse, where in-house lawyers, outside counsel, and industry experts gather round to discuss current issues and best practices. I'm your host, Mark Henriquez, a commercial litigator with Wombleban Dickinson. With me, as always, is my producer, Brian Ewing. And joining us today is my colleague and fellow Womble partner, Lisa Rushton. Lisa, good to have you back on the show. Thanks, Mark. It's great to be here again. Um, and I'm really excited to announce our guest of honor today, Anita Cicero, who is Deputy Director and CEO, uh, COO with the Center for Health Security at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Anita, really appreciate you making time to be here today. It's great to be with you, Mark, and Lisa as well. Now, that's great. Uh, we've asked Anita to sit down with us today to talk about a subject that is on everyone's mind, returning to work in this COVID-19 environment. Um, the Bloomberg School published this month an operational toolkit uh, for businesses considering reopening or expanding operations amid the pandemic. Um, the toolkit provides a lot of detailed guidelines for best practices and an assessment tool for determining risk. Um, we're recording this now at the end of May, and this is an evolving situation. As you know, uh, guidance changes and the status of reopening uh, changes. But I wanted to kind of dig into some of the practical considerations that you as an in-house counsel may want to think about as you're doing a risk assessment and trying to decide uh, whether, whether to reopen. Um, so that's going to be our focus. Initially, Anita, I thought I might... Um, talk a little bit about what health professionals have done. I think there's a lot of education out there, um, but in some cases, maybe an overload of information. And I think that's why, you know, some of our, our most reputable and trusted institutions like Johns Hopkins are getting so much attention because we are hearing from, you know, every media outlet and every doctor and every friend of a friend of a doctor that once practiced about what the, uh, you know, what the latest things are. I I'm particularly wondering if there are things about the illness or reopening that maybe haven't sunk in or maybe where the public perception may be different than the reality as you see it from the perspective of Johns Hopkins? Uh, thanks, Mark. That That is a good question. I think there's both been an overload of information, but also a fair amount of misinformation as well. And But on the flip side, maybe um, less guidance early on from, from CDC. Um, than that we needed. And so um, we have tried to fill some of that void, I think, to provide good information. Um, in terms of the illness itself, I think by now people do understand that it is four times or more um, as um, lethal and, and also more transmissible than flu. Um, we know and have been told that um, underlying health conditions and also people who are over 60 or 65 are more at risk for, for contracting corona. Um, but what we don't know yet um, is the, how those comorbidities really come into play. How significant is it, for instance, if you're a diabetic, but your diabetes is well controlled? If you have hypertension, but that is controlled? Um, and so we, we really need more data. Um, if you look at some other countries like Singapore, you can really see a line list of all their cases, where they're coming from, um, the different attributes of the, the patients. And that just doesn't exist on a national level in the U.S. So there's um, still a lot to learn about that. Interesting. One area that seems to be a hot topic now is 
mode of transmission. I know we've gone, some people argue, oh, it's primarily, you know, surface contamination and you touching something else, you know, and then we've got respiratory and we have this whole issue about, is it aerosolized? Is it, is it regular breathing versus coughing? You know, for someone that's working with it all the time, you know, what's your sense of the current thinking? And I know we don't have a lot of certainty there either in terms of any absolutes, but what, you know, what, what's your assessment of the, the relative risk of different types of transmissions as businesses try to decide where to focus their energy? I think the main, it's, it's clear that the main mode of transmission would be between people in close contact who are together for more than 10 minutes at a time speaking. Um, that is really going to be the main driver of transmission. It's it's not going to be, you know, touching your grocery bag or the box of Wheaties on the shelf at the grocery store. Um, and it's um, and I don't think it will either will it be um, aerosol. That doesn't mean that there aren't fomites and viral particles left on surfaces and that it might not be able to be transmitted by, by aerosol. We've shown that um, in studies in laboratories, certainly you can find detectable amounts of it um, in aerosol and on surfaces. But I, but I think in terms of a main driver, that should not be the focus uh, or, or distract us from the real transmission pathway, which is close contact with, with people over prolonged periods of time, especially contact indoors. Gotcha, that's really so, helpful. So Anita, how do you think that impacts the diff different industries on reopening? Um, you know, are there certain kind of higher risk industries or types of companies that should be a little bit more focused on their reopening or lower risk, you know, companies or industries or operations? Yes, and actually, Lisa, that is how we put together our um, operational risk assessment calculator for businesses, because there are so many different kinds of businesses that we couldn't go business by business or facility by facility to give specific advice. So we took a step back and said, okay, well, what, what is the risk level inherent in this business in a business as usual way in terms of transmission of the virus and being able to significantly contribute to community spread? And so uh, businesses that um, a core part of their operations would require prolonged um, in-person contact between people, many people or even fewer people, but over a prolonged period of time inside are going to be the highest highest risk areas. I mean, the, I think the extreme examples of that that we have seen are some manufacturing and processing plants like um, um, you know, meat processing plants um, and also congregate living situations like long-term care facilities and, um, and prisons, of course. But from the business perspective, it's, it's really that the business kind of requires people to be um, indoors and interacting with a lot of people or a lot of customers. I, I think that's great. And I know you mentioned the toolkit and we'll include in our show notes a link to it, but you can find it if you just go to centerforhealthsafety.org. You'll see a number of publications there um, and, the, and, the, and the operational toolkit is right there. Um, Anita, can you tell our listeners, one of the things that I found unique is you've actually got a, a risk assessment calculator, a, a spreadsheet 
And I know other people have seen checklists, but this is a little a little different uh, approach to it with a spreadsheet. Can you just walk us through that a little bit so our listeners understand what it is and, and why it's a good tool? Sure. Um, well, first of all, we have a, um, a decision tree for a risk assessment that the each company could walk its way through and in, in its four stages. And in the first two stages, we have a calculator, which is an Excel spreadsheet um, that would help the business calculate its risk. So for instance, in stage one, um, the, the business calculates, as I said, its inherent risk as a business in a business as usual approach. So how many people are, um, does it usually have inside each day? Does, it, does the business really rely on going from facility to facility or rely on international travel or large conferences and that kind of thing? So the calculator is a tool that allows, that, that has a series of questions and each business would go through those questions and answer yes, no, or not applicable. And those answers then produce a risk score at the end um, initially. And that and the different answers are weighted and we develop those weights um, by, you know, within our Center for Health Security. So we use experts who weighed how significant is this factor versus that factor um, in coming up with the score. There's also a calculator that is used specifically to go to the stage two, which, which speaks to how can we modify our operations to reduce that risk? And that's more, you know, um, kind of big ticket items. What is the feasibility of us changing the way we do business in order to reduce the score? And in the calculator, they go again through a series of detailed questions, answering yes, no, et cetera. And um, at the end, there's also waiting for that, the modification risk score. So um, you then see what is your overall risk. And after you modify operations, where does that leave you so that you can decide and you can see in the end whether you would be considered a very low risk, low, a moderate risk, a high or a very high risk of doing business even after all those modifications are done. I think that's great. Lisa? Yeah. Um, so as I'm, I'm hearing all this, I have one thought that kind of comes to mind. Companies as they're reopening are, of course, putting their policies together. But how do like families like mine, I've got young children that may go to summer camp or go to schools. And so they're going to have a whole separate set of exposures that they're coming home to the parents. And then those parents are, of course, potentially going in and out of work. And how does that come into the calculus and in either the toolkit or otherwise? And how can employers put that into their calculus when thinking about keeping employees safe? Yes, it's a good question. And everything's intertwined, as we have seen in this COVID world. Um, but in, um, in terms of the employees, I think a lot of businesses are um, preparing to do temperature checks, um, health screens of employees when they come in. Um, that can be somewhat useful, although of limited utility. Um, but hopefully if there are kids that are sick at home and the parents are sick, 
then businesses can screen those parents and, and encourage people to stay home and not come to work when they're feeling sick, encourage them to see a healthcare provider and to get a test if they need it. Um, but it doesn't, it can't address fully uh, the risk that is out there. Um, and as we know, uh, something in the order of at least 25%, maybe much higher, maybe as high as 40% of people who have COVID-19 are asymptomatic. And it seems that the those that are asymptomatic really skew young. So the younger you are, it's more likely that you would be asymptomatic. That definitely seems to be the case for children. Um, we, we put out a different report um, about kids really calling for action uh, for, for the federal government to, to fund and prioritize um, the conduct of studies that really would look at transmissibility of kids. Um, even though kids are less likely to have suffer severe illness, um, they have, they're able to you know, um, become infected at the same rate as adults. <laughs> um, but the key question is, are they transmitting that even if they have, if they're asymptomatic or only have low symptoms to adults who would then go to work, you know, carrying that infection? So, um, the, the, you know, dealing with that asymptomatic factor for businesses, I think, is so important. Um, and that's why one of the, the some of the most important things that can be done by businesses are really to change the way the physical um, nature of the inside environment, because um masks and and cleaning can only do so much so unfortunately i think it will be important to keep people six feet apart and physically distant in order to address that problem with asymptomatic spread you brought up temperature testing anita and that's one of the areas that i've seen some of the most controversy on some people say because of all the issues you just talked about asymptomatic carriers people that may have a temperature but because of something else it's not covid um you know that it, that this is not very reliable and in fact i'm not sure it's something i'm trying to recall but i'm not sure you specifically recommend temperature testing as a as a modification in the in the toolkit yet in the clients we're talking to I'd say not all, but maybe a majority are going to do some kind of temperature testing. Some is self-testing. That's something our firm is doing where you have to take your own temperature before you come in, you know, and report on an app. Yes, I took my temperature. Others have screeners at the door where, you know, you're getting, um, you know, that instant temperature reading off a of forehead each day. What what are your thoughts on, on the usefulness of that and, uh, you know, how to use that kind of screening data yes we we do um, list temperature checking in in the um, toolkit and um, cdc just released more detailed guidance um, although it's still interim guidance for businesses considering reopening and cdc does recommend temperature checking um, of employees um, the the kind um, temp temperature checking um, is is good to do, I guess, but we should be um, clear that it shouldn't give people a false sense of security that if someone doesn't have a temperature, they must not have COVID-19 because that that is just not the case. Um, and also some of the temperature checks um, 
that the, the thermal screens that you can that businesses are considering setting up, um, they do have kind of a, a high false negative rate. Um, so they're you know it's not a cure all. Um, we've heard from businesses that because of that they're also exploring the use of other kinds of testing, whether it's kind of if if they can get their hands on it, sort of rapid on site um, antigen tests. Or, or even looking into maybe antibody tests to see if um, their employees are already immune. Um, and not just businesses, but universities um, like Hopkins and others are, are looking into the feasibility of that, trying to think about how would they operationalize that? How would they afford that? What would that take? Um, and and uh, right now, there's just not probably sufficient tests on the market to even, you know, envision that companies would be able to have um, enough tests to be able to do that. Kind of building on that with regard to the antibody tests and things like that, I mean, how much do we know at this point in time with regard to if someone does show to have the antibody that, in fact, they will be immune to getting it again? And what about the concept I've heard of um, antibody certificates or things like that, that you get a certificate that you, you have the antibodies in your system. For the um, antibody tests or the serology tests, um, it was um, a bit of a, the, the wild west on those tests until probably mid-April um, because um, different labs and companies developed their own test and tests and FDA was pretty lenient on letting them put their tests out on the market because there was such a demand and interest in getting those tests. But what they found is that the, the tests that were available weren't very accurate and they were not validated. And so they had sort of a low sensitivity and low um, specificity and were giving false, false results. So FDA kind of pulled back the reins on those and they now require that um, the tests achieve 95% specificity and sensitivity or else they can't be on the market. Um, so I think they they are improving. Um, we we do need to do large scale, I think, um, seroprevalence studies using antibody tests so that we have a sense of how prevalent it is. Um, it is in the US. In some other countries like Spain and France um, that have had a lot of infections, they've done large seroprevalence studies and have found that only about five or 7% of their population had antibodies. Um, in the US, the limited number of studies that have happened, mostly in New York and New Jersey, show higher, maybe 15%, but herd immunity, it's a long way off. I mean, for herd immunity, we need, we want to achieve, you know, 70% um, <laughs> antibody levels, which aren't, which really aren't, we don't seeing that. Um, our center is not um, in favor of immune immunity certificates. Um, one, um, is that because of the low seroprevalence, I don't think that enough people will be immune to really make a difference to say, well, we'll just let the those employees who are immune work the cash register or whatever, because maybe you can't, you don't have find any in your business. But secondly, um, we don't want it to give give people a perverse incentive to try to get infected so that they therefore can be immune and have an immunity certificate. On the other hand, once we have a vaccine, it might be reasonable to require, you know, proof of vaccination to go to certain places or or 
um, sit in certain places on a plane, for instance. Um, and but vaccination will will really be the thing that creates herd immunity. We were joking at the beginning of the podcast that you know we'd all be rich if you could tell everyone when the you know when this would be over, when it will, when we'd have a vaccine. Um, and I know there's a lot of uncertainty there, but I do. I'd be interested in your thoughts about kind of a forecast of either a vaccine or the cycle of the disease, knowing there's a lot of uncertainty, but as someone that spent a lot of time looking at it, you know, for business people, you know, trying to make predictions or plans, what, 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 you know, what, what are you seeing over the next year? One thing that is heartening is that I don't think I ever would have imagined the amount of international support, government support, money from government and from private donors and companies chipping in, all driving for rapid vaccine development. Um, there are, I think, 10 vaccine candidates now in the pipeline. Um, clinical trial, large cl clinical trials may be starting this summer on Moderna's product. Um, their RNA platform for the vaccine. Um, um, on the one hand, would be very nice because uh, because of that RNA platform, it would allow much quicker scale up um, and manufacturing of that. On the other hand, I think it may require to be kept at something like negative 80 degrees Celsius. Um, so it'd be hard uh, to imagine it being deployed to very low resource settings. But everyone's driving for it. I think for the vaccine, it's important for people to remember even if it's done in a 12 to 18 month um, time frame at breakneck speed and everything cuts in the right direction to produce the vaccine, that does not mean that on day one of it being available, it will be available for the world or even available to all Americans. So I think um, down the road, there, there will be really tricky decisions about vaccine allocation because it will be a scarce resource for a while, even if there are 40 million doses we have to figure out who those 40 million go to in the US. Um, but I, I tend to be a little more of a skeptic in terms of having, you know, hundreds of millions of doses available in, in fall or by the end of the year. Um, but hopefully, um, I don't <laughs> by <laughs> first or second quarter of next year, if I had, if I was a betting person, but you know, we'll so ho hopefully I'm wrong and, and, um, and I'll, we'll, we'll see some vaccine come out in October. Since we're, since we're placing odds, I know there's also a lot of discussion about a fall resurgence. You know, are we going to see as we get reopening, you know, we kind of had, uh, you know, and again, the state data is obviously different than national data. And I try to look at, you know, both of those, but I think a lot of people are concerned that as things reopen or certainly as people go back to school, um, you know, in August, we may see another, you know, significant increase in rate of infection. What do you have predictions in terms of what you expect to see there and, you know, and, and whether it's likely to result in another round of some shutdowns and, and restrictions? Yeah, I, I'm puzzled by the discussion around the fall wave, the second wave in the fall, because I, I really think that the, the virus hasn't changed. It hasn't um, it hasn't become, you know, less virulent. And um, the reason why we've been able to really drive down the number of cases is is through social distancing measures. Um, but I, you know, it's. If we have, if we continue to, to push for more testing, 
if we do contact tracing in order to identify the cases that are positive and find their close contacts, quarantine people during the infectious period, isolate those who are sick and treat them, if we're able to contain the outbreak in that way, um, then I wouldn't see, I wouldn't imagine there would be um, spikes in cases. But even before the fall, I think we could see a resurgence of cases in, in states that have, are proceeding with reopening, even though their case counts are going up, or even though the percent positivity of the testing they are doing is still fairly high. Um, and um, so I would expect there would be, I don't know of the big wave, but, you know, sort of like little riptides here and there over the course of the summer. Now, I do think that um, having the children go back to school in the fall, um, depending on whether they can efficiently transmit the virus to adults, um, could result in, you know, more of a spike. But um, we, like I said, we still need to find out more uh, fill, fill those gaps of our knowledge about um, transmission in kids before we know if that would be likely to happen. So you mentioned contact tracing. And um, on the last time I checked, which I'll admit was just a couple of weeks ago, um, I think three states had bought into the concept of contact tracing at a state level. Um, I don't know if that's continuing with other states or if others have bought into the concept. What do you think of it at the state level? or with for companies doing it you know individually for their own employees we have been um pleased to see that there has been uh there have been more and more states and also um, local public health agencies that, that have been able to hire more contact tracers so it's it's not limited to just three states any longer um, in our report on contact tracing we had called for an additional 100,000 contact tracers um, to be hired or, or as used as volunteers um, with a pretty hefty price tag of, you know, almost $4 billion, uh, four, $4 billion. Um, And um, I think the last I checked, maybe a couple weeks ago, 60,000 new contact tracers are either onboarded or in the process of getting onboarded in different states. So states really are making an effort to increase their tracing forces. Um, for businesses, if they find that an employee is sick or there's an outbreak, I think their first stop would be to have the employee contact the local or state public health department because they are really best placed to do that aggressive kind of contact tracing and they know how to handle the data um, in a confidential manner. They need that data anyway as they aggregate um, public health data related to the crisis in order to better you know, protect people and put in, in measures themselves. Um, but I, I also think it's a reasonable thing for, for companies to do if they have if they have locations of their companies that are in other countries that or states that are don't have enough contact tracing, um, don't have a contact tracing workforce or on, on top of the cases that the company um, should do what they can do to try to trace trace those um, potential um, exposures and to encourage people to quarantine at home um, during the infectious period. 
you know, as as a, both a, as a lawyer that's also working in the public health area, you've got an interesting dual perspective. And I know the contact tracing brings up some interesting issues around privacy uh, and employee rights. I know I I understand now there's some apps that are being marketed to employers that say you put your put this app on all your company owned phones um, and it'll tell you whether two employees have gotten within six feet of each other for more than 10 minutes or 15 minutes or whatever the period is. And that way, if you get an infected employee, you can run a report and it'll show you, um, you know, all the data for contact tracing. So, you know, you know, that positive employee had contact with these other 10 people. Um, the interesting thing to me is these are generally activated for the entire time the employee has the phone. So it not only is gonna show were they next to each other, you know, on the on the manufacturing floor, but were they next to each other at a bar, were they next to each other in each other's homes? A lot of information that would certainly be traditionally viewed as very private information about what coworkers may, you know, how close are coworkers getting um, at different times of day, you know, as, a, as someone that's done some privacy work, it raises a lot of flags. And I'm just interested if, if if you've looked at that or know people that are looking at that, I think that's a challenge for some of our in-house counsel as they weigh the safety issue with some of these employee privacy concerns. And those are really important um, concerns as well. Um, I think that for well for the um, the Google Apple um, API, so it's more of a, a platform for apps. Um, it unfortunately it's it it doesn't connect i mean for because they were concerned about privacy but it doesn't send that data um to public health agencies so that they can use it it is more of a sort of a self-help in terms of alerting people if they might have had an exposure um, to someone who later was diagnosed as having covid 19. Um, I, I really think that the the best way um, to be able to track uh, the virus and um, and take appropriate measures would be to provide data to um, public health agencies. And they are um, legally allowed under HIPAA and also um, other legislation um, more specifically related to public health to to collect that data, very personally identifiable data, and to to use it even um, in appropriate ways for research purposes, um, and, and in order to ad advance public health measures, um, I think it becomes very tricky if you um, if companies sort of get in the middle and decide they they'll you know collect all of this sensitive data about employees and sort of decide what to do based on that and and you're right i think it it may be collecting a lot more um, information you know beyond what you might need to know for um, covid contact tracing purposes mm -hmm. interesting um Another area that I wanted to just touch on because we get a lot of questions are what happens if someone does test positive, either test positive because you're doing screening or they report to you that they've tested positive and gone in. Um, I know you mentioned quarantine, but are there other folks, you know, we're, we've got a number of businesses that happily still haven't dealt with that yet, right? They're, they're trying to get ready, but they may not have had that experience of someone actually coming or calling in saying, you know, I've tested positive. What, what are some things folks should be thinking about when that happens? 
If an employee tests positive um, in the CDC guidance, they they uh, just advised that um, the area that where that employee was working within the building um, should be um, shut down, sort of cleared out um, for you know. 24 hours and um, and then you send in a cleaning crew 24 hours later. Um, I think the the purpose of that would be again so fomites that were there at least on um, uh, porous surfaces would be gone by then or not infectious. Um, and so they recommend cleaning that area thoroughly and keeping people out of there then until it is both cleaned and disinfected and then um, letting people back in. Um, I, I do think it would be um, important for companies, employers then to say to employees who might have been around that em employee, the infected employee to say, you know, we think you might have been exposed. Um, we'd like for you to go home and stay in quarantine for a couple of weeks. Um, they probably should not reveal who the sick employee is um, and there's EEOC guidance on that. Um, but I think it would be important to alert them that they might have been exposed. And um, this is also why it's good for companies to have very flexible sick leave policies and also, um, you know, paid <laughs> paid periods of time when people can stay stay at home um, during that infectious period. And also um, in CDC's guidance, and I also think this is a good idea. Um, it would be better if businesses didn't really require the doctor's note uh, from employees if they um, test positive or think that they were exposed. Um, and that's purely because healthcare providers are so overwhelmed um, now that it would be hard for them to get get to all of those doctor's notes. But um, but that's the recommendation. I'm interested in following up on something you said about children. Um, as someone I know, Lisa has kids, as do I. You know, it's it, it sounds like there's something of an open question about transmission from children to adults. Is that something that is actively being studied and and checked on? I assume there's some places where maybe schools are still in session and other parts around the world, not not necessarily here in the U.S. But do you know well, what is being done there? That seems like a critical question as both public and private schools try to decide what to do come fall. We agree. And the, the bottom line is that there's not enough that's being done. Um, there are some countries who have had um, kids in school um, through much of the spring, but um, robust transmission studies were not performed in order to to be able to know whether those um, having the kids in school um, while cases were on the increase um, it, um, contributed to transmission in the communities or not. Um, like Sweden, for instance, um, each school was in each locality could decide for themselves whether they wanted to keep school open or close. Many of the schools remained open. Um, in some of those schools, teachers got infections, but there wasn't, as far as we can tell, and we've tried to do a lot of digging in this area, you know, there weren't um, investigations or studies launched to try to trace those contacts to see if they came from, from children or not. Um, there was a, um, a high school cluster of cases in northern France while school was still open, um, I think back in January or February. Um, and there, it did seem that there were um, infections that 
you know, the infected um, parents and infected siblings back home, um, and about 40% of um, infections in that high school, especially in kids, you know, 15 to 17 years old. Um, but many of the, the schools and, and many daycares have been shut down. So there've been like limited opportunities to really study that. So I think that for places that, I think it's important to study that now for daycares that are open. Um, I know there was a daycare outbreak um, with, uh, with both kids and, and uh, daycare workers who were infected in Quebec. Um, but there, you know, there are, just aren't many, um, many situations in which, in which they were both in, in school or daycare, and also there was a study done to know if transmission occurred or not. So we really need to get to the bottom of that. And also schools, um, it will, it's gonna be very hard for schools to follow all the guidelines that FDA and others have put out for them um, if they do intend to open in the fall. It will, it will be difficult and, and expensive um, to try to keep kids six feet apart and and sort of have A, B days and maybe put up plastic barriers and, you know, upgrade ventilation systems within schools that costs a lot of money. So if we can, you know, put our money towards these studies over the summer and now as much as we can to try to get some of those answers before the fall, then um, it'll both give us, you know, make us feel more comfortable sending our kids back to school and then also maybe save a lot of money for the schools and, and a lot of heartache for everyone. That makes a lot of sense. Thank you. That's that's interesting. Um, you know, I, you've got a lot of good recommendations in your toolkit, and we've seen stuff from the CDC. Some stuff seems to be happening. I mean, I see floor markings in the grocery store. I see some plastic barriers in one-way aisles. I see people wearing masks, although half the time they just cover their mouth and not their nose, which is reducing some of the effectiveness of, of that. Um, I'm interested if you're seeing things that may be suggested, but are just being implemented incorrectly or ignored that maybe as in-house counsel folks should be aware of, to, you know, they implement these rules, but then people never bother to do them. What, what, you know, what, what are some of those common areas where people either misunderstand or just, you know, don't want to bother? Yeah, I think that uh, the problem is that um, this is not second nature to anyone yet. I think we have seen really good adaption in um, grocery stores and uh, and um, pharmacies and other stores, the essential places that have remained open, as you said, in terms of trying to control the crowd and have people go one way and have the, um, the credit card reader away from where the cashier is so that people don't need to be standing so close. So that's all great. But mostly during this time, we've been, you know, sheltering at home um, and people don't have as much, they don't have much experience going to work and maintaining and following all of these, these, these guidelines. Um, and I think that it could be um, either because people have a false sense of security over time and get a little lazy or really just forget um, to wipe down the keyboard that someone else just touched before they touch it. So I think there are going to be many things like that that um, we'll, we'll need to take care doing. Um, you know, th the good news is that I think something like 70 to 75% of Americans are supportive of physical distancing measures. 
And we just need to remember that when we go back to work, those measures are still really critical. They are our most um, powerful tool against the coronavirus right now. Um, looking back, I think it was mid-March, something like March 16th, that the US only had 100 cases. And then 72 days later, um, we were above 100,000 cases. So it's really, even when we go back to work, it's um, too soon to like look at the virus in the rear view mirror. It is still very much um, amongst us. And um, so I think that for businesses that can allow people to work remotely and have the, the space to really think about reconfiguring office space inside, looking at their um, HVAC system to make sure it they're getting as much ventilation as they possibly can, um, reducing or eliminating travel that is normally associated with with the, the um, with work is um, will be really key. You know, one facility that um, every establishment has, and I just haven't myself seen that much discussion with regard to our restrooms. They are small spaces. Every operation has them and you have people going in and out generally the same door and that seems like the most logical place at this point in time where people are going to come in close contact with each other. Is there any guidance out there on how we deal with those and cleaning them and you know you can't really have people schedule when they need to use a restroom. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's an interesting idea, right? You use your app. I, I need to go. I need to go. We'll slot you in. Uh, you may go in 28 minutes. <laughs> you just struck me while we were talking. Like this is like that. That's a hard thing to deal with, and every establishment has them. Right. It is. Yeah. You can't wait for your 2 p.m. appointment to to use the restroom if you need it. Um, I haven't seen specific guidance on restrooms. Um, FDA guidance, and maybe I, I've missed it, so it, it could be there. And after this call, I'll certainly look that up because um, you piqued my interest. But um, FDA guidance in general said, promotes frequent cleaning and disinfecting of surfaces. Um, how frequent is frequent? They don't really specify, although in one part of the guidance they do suggest that um, there be cleaning and, and disinfecting both at the beginning and at the end of every shift. Now, many businesses don't operate in shifts, um, so that would need to be translated. But I do think it makes sense in terms of restrooms to limit the number of people in there at any given time and to really try to rethink the door situation, which um, would, you know, if, if it is possible to um, if it were possible to get rid of the door or possible to have a door where there's a sensor and it opens and and closes if somebody's you know in front of it um, would make a lot of sense. So again, it gets back to some of these engineering controls that companies would be looking at will will take some time and um, and and some amount of expense to put them in place. What about like air purifying systems? Um, I've seen some promotion of those. Um, just wonder your thoughts on those, whether they have any effect on the virus, ionizing systems or otherwise. Well, we know that the more ventilation, the more outside air you can draw into inside spaces, the better. 
Um, and in fact, there are even recommendations that some business activities that can be held outside should be. We have seen that in states that are beginning to reopen, one of the uh, first things that restaurants can reopen are their outdoor seating areas. So it really helps to have um, good ventilation. And um, and in, in many cases that will require upgrades to systems um, and leaving windows open when possible and things of that nature. What about travel, Anita? I know a lot of our clients are struggling with travel to both air, you know, a lot of them have put a complete restriction on all travel and are now trying to assess, you know, do we try to go visit a client site? Do we do that by air? Do we do that by car? Do we cancel it? And, and again, sometimes you can do things by video, but if you're doing an installation of a new piece of equipment or you're doing a demonstration on how to use the equipment, there's some things that just don't lend themselves well uh, to video. And I think that's a struggle. I'm interested in your sense of, you know, how big the risk is for, you know, for car travel, for, for air travel, and any options to try to minimize that that risk if, you know, if they feel they need to do it. Well, one thing is, that is for sure is that if you can minimize the use of tr public transportation, um, that would be helpful. It's not always possible. Um, I think for car travel, if people are using um, their own cars or even uh, renting cars, I think that that can be done safely. Um, air travel it sort of gets a bad rap. Um, people are concerned about the air systems within airplanes and recirculation of air and what that could mean. We, we don't see um, really a spike in cases um, so far in air travel. Um, and that's been pretty much true for past um, outbreaks of different types of infectious disease as well. So I think there's a bit of an overreaction to that. Um, Obviously, this is something that companies um, are learning to do on the fly, as it were, and um, an airline company, airlines too, have been experimenting with different ways, and they seem quite devoted to trying to reduce um, the risk of air travel as much as possible. Um, Again, I think that for air travel, it's as important to think of what's your destination um, as it is how are you going to get through the two hour flight to get there? So, for instance, if you're going to, you know, a city or state where there's a lot of community spread of coronavirus still, um, that might be a good trip to put off versus one in which it had, you know, the cases have been going down, hospitalizations are down, um, the percent positivity in their very abundant testing is less than 5% positivity. And um, and it just makes it a sort of a safer destination in general if if you feel that you need to travel for work. That's really helpful. I know we're we're about out of time. I'm interested if you could share a little bit on what the Center for Health Security may be working on now or what's coming down the pike. What are what are some of the things that are that are keeping you guys? What, what, what's your focus now uh, in terms of what's next? Well, we are um, looking very much at um, watching the testing and contact tracing numbers. Again, we feel that the sooner we can get to the point where 
Public health is doing case-based interventions um, for each specific case rather than these community-wide interventions, the better. So our work on, on some of these issues is not done. We still need more testing. We still need more contact tracing. Um, we, we still need to know what the, the role that children play in transmission because school is just around the corner. Um, but we're also, um, we're looking at, um, risk assessments for different kinds of um, situations, like for universities and maybe also for K, K to 12. Um, we are coming out with a report soon on the impact of the, um, the, the pandemic on the nursing workforce. Um, they have played kind of a hidden but really, really important role in response to the outbreak. And there are a number of um, things that that should be done in order to improve um, the preparedness and support for nurses during the outbreak. Um, also, we, we don't think it's too soon to kind of look down the road and think about what, what can we do to make sure this doesn't happen again um, in, in the US. And one of the things, a couple of things that we're promoting, one is we, we think the US government really needs to have a standing capability that is devoted to developing medical countermeasures for unknown pathogens. So diagnostics, vaccines, and antivirals. Um, we really now operate under, like based on a threat list of, you know, if the threat like anthrax is on the list, then we try to develop countermeasures for it. But there's no de um, dedicated capability to looking at how do you respond quickly to a new pathogen, because that's what um, SARS-CoV-2 is. Um, and there are lots of ways that platform technologies and the right skill sets could be brought to bear so that we would have been on better footing from the get-go um, and would be in the future if, an, if when the next um, unknown pathogen comes and, and becomes an epidemic. And then finally, um, we are also advocating for the creation of a National Infectious Disease Forecasting Center, sort of like the National Weather Service. Um, we have seen how important models um, have been in this outbreak. Everyone is looking at the, at the latest model, um, including the White House, trying to figure out what will the cases be like in the summer and in the fall, and, and how do we prepare ourselves based on the model. Um, and incredibly, the, the government has no kind of standing capability of modelers. There, there's small modeling groups um, that are in HHS and CDC, but, but when they need modelers, they really go to outside universities and contacts and friends of friends who are doing this in their spare time and they're not on the payroll. Um, and so we, we think that that should be changed in the future. That's great. Well, congratulations. Those sound like really important projects. So I'm, I'm delighted to hear someone is focusing on those, including how to, you know, how to deal with it the next time. Cause I think you're right. This is not, um, you know, this will not be the only time we're faced with this. We've been faced with it in the past and, um, and we need to be, you know, we need to continue. We need to have systems in place to, to deal with it on an ongoing basis. Great. Lisa, any final questions or comments for Anita? Uh, my only final comment is just to thank you, Anita, for taking the time to talk with us. Um, it was just great to hear your insights and your thoughts, and it's always a, a pleasure to spend time with you. Thank you, Lisa and Mark. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. It, it was great. This was super informative. I, I really appreciate it.
Um, and I know we mentioned the website uh, earlier, but if people want to learn more or follow the the Center for Health Security, um, or or get you know follow you, are there ways that they can connect with you online or or, or resources they should be checking in on? Yes, we have. Um, Hopkins has a COVID resource um, page, and both for the university and then also for our Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security, we have a daily COVID summary um, that we have been putting out. And I think many people are familiar with the um, the map of COVID case tracker map that we have that is not just global, but also looks at um, trends at the county level that has been built out recently to include information on testing um, and the different types of tests that are available. So that is a good resource as well. Terrific. That's great. No, and I think a lot of people rely on that map. It does remind me of one question I forgot to ask, which is I read a report recently that was looking at the reported deaths from seasonal flu in several states, you know, being, you know, a multiple of what it was in past years, Florida, Texas. Um, and I think a lot of speculation around whether that is actually going to be COVID death. I, I know you're, you're limited in reporting, you know, what is told to you in terms of cause of death, but I'm wondering if you have thoughts or insight into some of that, you know, what th those other deaths in terms of the accuracy of the the numbers we're seeing, uh, particularly around around uh, COVID death. I think we don't have um, really fine tuned data, and it will be um, difficult to get to the bottom of many of those deaths to see if it was um, truly flu related or COVID, especially those that happened early on before we were trying to track. Um, and, but that is something that I think, you know, will be explored and should be, and it actually brings up another issue. I, I think that this um, current COVID-19 crisis should really motivate us to try to um, produce um, better, more actionable data that is made quickly transparent um, so that we can really understand the outbreak um, and and um, understand where it is and where it isn't. Um, even now, we know that there are lots of cases in congregate settings, but we don't know where the majority of the U.S. cases are. Are they coming from nursing homes? Or are they coming from just community spread? So, um, so we we need more information about all of that data in the future. Absolutely. No, I agree. Mark, Thank you. go ahead, Brian. I'm sorry, Mark. I have I have a question. Um, Anita, I'm curious. Knowing what you know in, in the role that you're in now and knowing what you know from your role uh, as a, a practicing attorney, what do you think is the biggest liability risk for businesses uh, returning employees back to work? I think businesses are most concerned and maybe should be most concerned about a situation in which they have an outbreak. Um, within the business, um, within their employees, and especially one that sort of spills out outside of, you know, the walls of, of the business and maybe um, generates a larger spread within the community. And that's why I think it has been so important for CDC to come out with its more detailed guidance recently uh, for businesses, because then at least businesses could say, 
you know, we had a duty of care and we made a good faith effort to comply with CDC guidance and all of these um, various ways. And, um, and therefore, you know, that that should mean something um, if there are lawsuits brought against us as a result of outbreaks that are alleged to have started in, in the business. Um, but I, you know, I feel for business. I think that's a, and for schools, I think it's a, a difficult and unfortunate set of potential liabilities to have to consider. Thank you. No, I think, thanks, Brian. That's a good, that's a good question. Cause that is probably top of mind for a lot of our, a lot of our listeners. Well, thank you. That'll bring us to the end of the show. Uh, this has been a lot of interesting information. We will include links um, to both the CDC guidance and to the uh, to the business risk worksheet that we talked about earlier uh, in the show notes. Uh, also, listeners, you can find previous episodes of the in-house roundhouse and subscribe to this podcast at our website at wombobondickinson.com or on iTunes, the Google Play Store, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks, everyone, for listening. This has been the in-house roundhouse. See you at the next station.